Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast. My name is Lauren. And I'm Ben. And every episode, we get together and talk about the history of the modern heathen movement. The good, the bad, the ugly. And in this case, the really ugly. Yes. Some of it. But we try to do it with a sense of humor and puns, and occasionally we sing. What do you mean occasionally? I think we managed to work in a song just about every uh, every episode. You know how many times this weekend I've said, whoa, Ted. Oh, yeah. That that may be a meme we have permanently installed in uh, even culture, I'm afraid. And the special part about this show today is that we are actually live at Troth New 2020 Virtual. Mm-hmm. Learning yeah. experience for us all. And it's, of course, virtual because of the coronavirus, but it's been great. And thank you to our audience that's here. Big thank you to uh, everybody who's been putting this on and putting in the work and learning how to wrangle Zoom at the last minute. Yes. And we have a very special guest with us today. We have Jan with us from Gifts of the Weird. And he is going to be our moderator and helping us with the questions and answers in the Zoom session that we're in right now that's also, you know, this podcast recording slash a workshop at Trustmaker. There he is, Mr. America. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a thrill to be on the show with you two. And uh, we were just on his show, so go and check that out. We had way too much fun. So uh, <laughs> we appreciate being there with you. That was a lot of fun. and. Uh, I laughed really hard listening to it after it came out. Especially because you probably couldn't remember what you said. And so now you're like, oh. <laughs> I really just say that? Yeah. But but that's every podcast I record lately. I just sounded weird because I accidentally had the gain cranked up on the mic. I, I don't normally <laughs> I don't normally sound like a death metal vocalist. Only he sometimes. Usually. Mm. So today we're talking about the history of racism. And I think this is important to address because uh, it's it's a good contextual thing. A lot of things that we talk about in heathenry, we're talking about a lot of the early groups had racist and nationalist tendencies. But where did that all kind of come from, especially in the U.S.? Even sometimes like to think that we are somehow separate from, you know, the mundane concerns of the society that we live in, you know, there are some groups that have very much tried to promote an anti-modern, retro-heathen viewpoint where we're completely above the fray and seeing everything in a completely different light. The truth is, it's never worked out that way for long. We're not as nearly as apart from the mundane society that we all grew up in than perhaps we would like to believe sometimes. And a lot of the issues that we're going to talk about have ended up weaving themselves into the fabric of heathenry as it's developed in the United States. I did want to add, by the way, that this particular show is going to come from a pretty U.S. perspective. I know we've got people here from other countries, and I certainly don't want to come across as America-centric, but we are going to look mostly at... uh, how concepts of race and racism developed in the U.S. Even there, there's so much to talk about. You know, we could do, you know, a year's worth of podcasts on this. And what 
I've contributed is looking at how concepts of race developed using the authority of science. Because when I'm not doing wild heathen things and swigging mead and smashing the skulls of my enemies with carrot peelers, I am in fact a biologist. And this is something I know a little bit about professionally. So there are lots of different takes that could be taken. And if we've left something out, it wasn't intentional, but this is just the direction that we're going to go. And I will say one other kind of important thing, you brought that up. Jennifer Snook, who's a heathen and sociologist, actually wrote a book, it's been about five years ago now, called American Heathens. And one of the things that really came out of that research is how reflective American heathenry is of America in general, whether it be politics, racial attitudes, jobs, income, whatever. We are definitely a cross-section of America. Right. And I've seen the polarization in heathenry grow as the political polarization in American society has grown. Fifteen years ago, the troth still had a pretty vocal, soft, folkish wing. People who identified as that, but nonetheless liked the big tent that we were able to put up, that led to a number of uh, rather explosive events. And whether we like it or not, the troth is a bit more homogeneous than it used to be. In many ways, that's a good thing, but good or bad, it's the same process that we've seen in American political parties. There used to be conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans, and you know that's almost unimaginable these days. So to get into talking about race, I think the first thing we're going to have to talk about is myth. So Ben, what is a myth? A myth is a female moth. No. Actually, I'm I'm kidding, but that's an answer I got on an exam once. The Greek word muthos, all it originally meant was something spoken, something said. Myth means story. And we commonly use it to mean story that isn't true. So when the myth busters go out and blow up crash test dummies or whatever it is that uh, Tori and Grant and all of them do, They mean that they are disproving stories that aren't true. But that's not really what's important about myth. What makes a myth important is not whether it's factually true or not. One of those ancient Greek dudes, I forget whom, said that myths are that which never happened and is always true. Myths are the stories that we use to shape the way that we perceive the world. Myths are the stories that give meaning to the experiences that we have, the stories that explain why the world is the way it is, why our culture is the way it is, and why we do what we do. And myths can be perfectly historically true. A big one that's in the news a lot is the American Civil War. It really did happen, and Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant and Colonel Joshua Chamberlain and Braxton Bozo Bragg were all real people, and the battles did happen, and there were people in blue shooting at people with gray who were firing back. And yet, after the war, there grew up this myth of the lost cause, the idea that the South had really been right, and they'd fought bravely and nobly defending their rights to live as they chose And how tragic it was that purely by an accident of history, they lost 
and had to endure subjugation, but the nobility of their ancestors would never be forgotten. And it was in service of that myth that so many of those statues went up, mostly between 1900 and 1920, and again some in the 1950s, the statues that people are now tearing down or agitating to get tearing down, because we're seeing a change in one of the myths. This myth that, to some extent, I grew up with, and my mother and grandmother certainly did. Another big one's the Wild West. Oh, uh, yes, the, the idea of the bootstrappy lone cowboy who did everything mm-hmm. on his own, and that idea of extreme individualism, which is a huge thing, and you see that very much reflected in early Ossetru with, and this is my own personal argument, a lot of what we see like in the Nine Noble Virtues that were put out are more based on that kind of American Wild West lone cowboy bootstrappy mythos and not necessarily anything that's historically religiously valid. As Steve McNallan grew up in a Texas cow town, you know, it's not an accident that we've come up with, you know, that we have that that we have that strain of, you know, the rugged individual, a man who walks tall and looks everyone in the eye and don't take nothing from nobody. You know, the man goes around singing, I should have been a cowboy. I should have learned to rope and ride. Yeah. We have a quick question here that might fit in here right now. Gus said that he remembers how Asatru in North America came from Iceland and the revival there in the 1990s. He thinks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did that origin have an impact on how non-radical Asatru could form in America? And he also made a couple of comments that um, the nine noble virtues were talked about more 15 years ago than so much now. I would say that to some degree, I don't know that Iceland necessarily was a huge influence because really Asatru in America kind of developed simultaneously with Iceland. And with what was going on in Britain, they kind of happened simultaneously, but separately, but then kind of not. If you're interested in that, we have a, a full, we have two episodes on Steve McNallan, and the first episode goes into a lot of, and then we also have two episodes on Elsa Christensen, and those episodes really go into kind of early Ossetru and what happened. I would argue the reason that we have inclusive Ossetru is because of Diana Paxson, Prudence Priest, a lot of the early Berkeley heathens, I would argue, were probably uh, Melody Grundy as well, were a huge, more of an influence on having inclusive Ossetru in America than... I wish we all could be California heathens! So, uh, yeah, I think that's probably going to... That's my understanding. Um, and yeah, we don't talk, I think a big reason we don't talk about the nine noble virtues is because we have a lot more information available now than we did 15 years ago. Right. And a, a thing about Alsatru and Iceland, when that was developing, they didn't have much contact with the United States. Remember when Steve McNallan founded his group to try to follow the Viking religion, he called it the Viking Brotherhood and didn't call it Ausatru until 1978, I think. I haven't researched this enough. We ought to do a show on this somewhere down the, down the road. 
but there was a member of the Arizona kindred called, he went by the name of, I believe it was Thorstein Thorarinson, and he seems to have been the person who was in contact with the Ausatruarfjelagiv um, in Iceland, and he seems to be the one who imported the word and aspects of their practice, and then that spread from there to the AA and, uh, and the AFA, but I don't think until the rise of the web there was an awful lot of interchange partly because the early Iceland Ausatru movement wasn't very big because there are not that many people in the U.S. who can read Icelandic. And it really wasn't for consumption outside of Iceland. I mean, to some extent, it still isn't. They don't go around looking for members outside of Iceland, as far as I know. And Iceland's not exactly the most connected, especially you know, pre-internet. You're not talking about the most connected or the most accessible place in the world either. Well, except for those cheap Iceland air flights across the Atlantic. But yeah, that that is a part of it. So let's talk about race myths in the U.S. And this very much resonates with me having been raised evangelical young earth creationist and getting kicked out of not one, but two apologetics conferences for questioning their logic as oh, a kid. Good on you. I'm good at that. So one of the big things, kind of the foundational things that I was taught, of course, was the story about Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And basically you have Shem being the father of the Semites, Ham was the father of the Canaanites, the Africans, and Japheth was the, or Japheth. I'm going to tell you, I, I will pronounce things horribly wrong because I learned how to pronounce biblical names from Baptist preachers. So there you go. Right. Was the, the father of the Europeans. and Ham was the father of the Africans and the Canaanites, they were cursed because he saw his father naked. I don't know if it was naked or naked, one um, of the two. Yeah, well, Noah got dead drunk and uh, took off all of his clothes and passed out on the floor. So that's naked. And Ham walked in and saw his father with his tallywhacker hanging out. And Ham ran and got his brothers and Shem and Japheth came in walking backwards so that they wouldn't see dad's ding-a-ling because that was evidently some kind of taboo and put a blanket over, you know, his wang. And then when Noah sobered up and got up, he pronounced a curse on uh, Ham uh, that his descendants would forever serve his brother's descendants. So what you're saying is they didn't want to see Noah's ding-a-ling, Noah's ding-a-ling. I didn't want to see Noah's ding-a-ling-a-ling. -ling. <laughs> okay. All right. Sorry about that. So, but yeah, even in like 1997, you have Henry Morris, who was a young earth creationist writer, you know, writing, the descendants of Ham were marked especially for secular service to mankind. And it goes on and on. And, uh, but thus, these are all the earth, and I feel uncomfortable reading this, guys, but I'm going to read it anyway. These are the earth's colored races yellow, red, brown, and black, essentially the Afro-Asian group of peoples, including the American Indians, are possibly Hermetic in origin and included within the scope of Canaanite prophecy, as well as the Egyptians, Sumerians, Hittites, and the Phoenicians of antiquity. Oh, God, I felt dirty just reading that. But Yeah, we're going to read some things that are not very comfortable to read or to hear, and you know, we certainly don't want to offend anyone, but, you know, if we make you feel a little uncomfortable, that's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. 
he continues to write though that often the Hamites, especially the I, I'm not gonna say that word. I'm gonna say blacks. I'm not saying that word. I'm a, no. Well, and this was written in 1997. I'm just gonna keep that there. Have become actual personal servants or even slaves of others, possessed of a genetic character concerned mainly with mundane matters. They were eventually displaced by the intellectual and philosophical acumen of the Javites, the Europeans, and the religious zeal of the Semites. And so basically, this breaks down into white people have provided the intellectual aspect of humanity's life, people of color, the physical, and the Semites, the spiritual. However, the Japhites have basically, the Europeans have taken over the spiritual as well. I'm breaking it down without having to say some of the words he's written here because I'm being recorded and and somebody's going to bring that back on me. No. Right. And be it said that Henry Morris is not just a young earth creationist writer. He and a theologian named uh, John Whitcomb wrote a book in the 60s called The Genesis Flood. What they actually did was take some ideas from the um, Seventh-day Adventist church and file off the serial numbers. But Morris is pretty much the founding father of all of that stuff that I had to deal with in high school. and. Yeah, written right there is the interpretation of the Bible where the Europeans are the intellectual and now the spiritual leaders, and the Hamites, which is everyone of color, is supposed to take over the physical aspect of life and serve everybody else, which is probably not what the authors of Genesis had in mind, but hey, let's go with it. So we basically have this biblical account, and if you have biblical literalists, which is how I was raised, you have this idea that Adam and Eve were the founders of humanity, but no one really knew how all the races came about. But when Europeans began to encounter people that were never mentioned in the Bible in those neat little categories, then people start speculating. And You have the speculation that the Native Americans are the 10 lost tribes of Israel, which is you know something the Mormons would take that football and start running with it. Dum, 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 uh, dum, dum. If anyone yeah. gets the South Park reference. Right. You have um, in the Bible, Adam and Eve's first child, Cain, uh, kills Abel and is cursed and runs away, but he actually goes and lives somewhere else and takes a wife. So there was a great deal of speculation about who these people might have been that provided Cain's wife. And so maybe they were some other people that weren't mentioned in the in the Bible, but God created them too. He just didn't see fit to say anything about it. We talked about this in one of our Indo-European podcasts. There was a lot of debate as to whether Asians might be Hamitic or Japhetic, or whether Europeans really were Japhetic or Hamitic, or lots of... Or the people who will argue that the British... The Anglo-Saxons specifically are the real Jews. Oh, yeah, that the, the Hebrews that God made his covenant with were actually British, and the people calling themselves Jews are usurpers. Uh, you see yeah, versions of that on the on the the right, the usurper theory. Elsa Christensen used to write about it, among other things. About so, two hours okay, north so. of us. You got some of those people about two hours north of us, but that's beside the point. Mm-hmm. So, asked if, uh, or asked if racism has its roots in Christianity. 
based on some of that. I would say that racism doesn't have necessarily an origin in Christianity. Western racism definitely has some, but racism is not a unique property of like Western European society. Yeah, some of the roots of this thinking, and this is something we, I don't think we have time to explore, but certainly in medieval Europe, the classic others, you know, those other people who just aren't right because they're not like us real people, were the Jews. In fact, to some extent, they still are in modern, you know, white supremacy. One of the writers that I'm going to mention had some pretty ugly things to say about Eastern European Jews. So that may be in part where some of the habit of picking out one defined group of people and, as they say these days, othering them, you know, making those people who are not like us people, that may be where some of that habit comes from. But some of it comes from the fact that as Europeans began exploring the world, they found all of these, you know, people with strange languages and skin colors and didn't entirely know what to make of them at first. And gold. Yeah. Well, that too, gold. But unfortunately, they soon did figure out what to uh, make of them, and the results were, shall we say, tragic. So it starts with the first Africans who were brought to Jamestown, Virginia, back in 1619. And here's the thing. In early colonial days, if you wanted to, you know, go to the colonies— and you couldn't afford your passage, you could indenture yourself, and somebody would pay for your passage, but when you got there, you had to work for them for typically seven years. And that could be rough, and it could be similar to slavery, but at the end of it, assuming you survived and assuming your master didn't cheat you, which did sometimes happen— you'd be freed and you'd get the full rights of citizenship in the colony and you might get some land out of the deal. So the first shipment of Africans brought to Virginia in 1619 were sold. They were treated as indentured servants, but eventually they were freed and given land. We don't quite have the idea of a you know permanent slavery, chattel slavery. That shows up in 1640. There's an indentured servant who is African in Virginia who goes by the name of John Punch. He and two other indentured servants tried to flee, and they were captured and they were punished. And the other two, who were European, uh, just had an extra year added, but Punch was made an indentured servant for life. And that's the first case of slavery imposed as a permanent condition. And that was fixed in 1662 when the legislature of the colony of Virginia devised a legal principle called partus sequiter ventrem. That's Latin for partus is what is born or what is brought forth. Sequiter, it follows ventrem, the belly, or in this case, the womb, the uterus. And that was the principle that ensured that any child of a slave woman would inherit the slave woman's status and be a slave herself. So you go from indentured servitude, which could be harsh and cruel, but at least had an end. You know, there was at least a light at the end of the tunnel to the development of Africans as permanent slaves and their descendants permanent slaves. Slavery becomes a perpetual status there. 
and the, you know the thing is is that slavery probably would have dwindled on its own you have new york state which had had at one point the second highest slave population in 1776 but were able to pretty much phase it out by 1827 however mr eli whitney came along and developed mm-hmm. a thing called the cotton gin as eli and, whitney said keep your cotton picking hands off my gin yes right old joke so and because of that you had cotton suddenly explode and go from you know 300,000 bales of cotton were produced in 1815 all of a sudden by 1850 you've got 4 million bales of cotton being produced every year in America so that takes plantations from being a thing to being a huge profit you know it takes them from being like you know the five and dime to Walmart essentially yeah, that- yeah, that created King Cotton. Yes. Something else you have to bear in mind is you can see this in the names of the American colonies. The ones south of the Mason-Dixon line are all named for kings, except for Delaware, which is named after a nobleman. They were all colonies established under royal charter. Uh, the northern colony is where the religious misfits tended to go, you know, like the Puritans who wanted the freedom to practice their own religion and burn Quakers. And, you know, that's where you get the the religious isolates and, you know, Pennsylvania, where people wanted to just be Quakers. So in the northern colonies, you get a bit more misfit sort of people. In the southern colonies, you're much more likely to get the sort of people who would say, yes, descendant of King Edward III of England and his chambermaid Ethelreda the Bowlegged, and because I have royal blood in my veins, it is perfectly obvious that the Lord God himself wishes that I should own 5,000 acres of land and have other people work it for me so that I can take all the profits and practice my fox hunting. And you still get this in the traditional... American South. You you certainly did in my family because it's Southerners that tend to be, or at least used to be, still obsessed with breeding, with knowing your place, with showing your class, with my mother insisting that when I helped clear the dishes at the end of the meal, I was not allowed to stack them because that's a marker of social class if you don't stack your dishes learning how to say sir and ma'am, and I still tend to use those reflexively even when I really don't have to. Proper posture. When you're walking next to a lady, you always walk on the outside so that if a carriage comes and splashes mud, her hoop skirts won't get dirty. So many rules. Cummings' idea of, you know, the colonies being founded by royal charter and that British aristocratic hierarchy being imported in a form and the need to know your place and live appropriately to your station. Did you get much of that, Lauren? Yeah, um, and also, even within the Southern accent, mm-hmm. which I have the the bastardized form in the uh, Ozarkian slash my mom grew up in New Jersey and South Louisiana accent, you have this, it's actually much more closely tied to the British accent at the time of colonization than it is anything else. They said, if you want to know what the Brits sounded like 
in the time of colonization, go listen to somebody from South Carolina or Georgia talk. That's the closest you're going to find. Especially kind of the upper class white, quote unquote, white accent. Right. But you have this situation with slavery where you create a kind of a border between who can and who can't be enslaved. And it was very critical to that economy for them to enforce this idea of whiteness. And so whiteness wasn't so much about a skin color as it was who got to be free and who was enslaved. My mother has reminisced about growing up in her small town in Mississippi. And one of the things that's not always realized is that even the white population was very socially stratified. You know, you had the professionals at the top of society and then the tradesmen, and then the farmers, and then the people from Appalachia who'd come to work in the cotton mill, the mill people. And then Mm -hmm. below them, you had the black folk, and then below that, you had the poor white trash. So, yeah, there's this very definite social stratification. You know, you know who your class is, you know who you're supposed to associate with, You know, the upper class is all Episcopalian and the middle class is Methodist and the white trash are the ones handling snakes out in the woods. My family resembles that. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah. It determines, you know, so much and it determines what kind of social privileges you get, whether they're legal privileges or, you know, informal things like, you know, just how you get treated and, you know, who tips their hat to you and who you have to nod before. I'm not sure I can explain it that well to somebody who hasn't grown up in it, but it's the kind of thing that I think Southerners know. And it could be damaging to, you know, the poorer white folks as well as the black folk. But it was just one of the things that you grew up with is that sense of social caste, which I don't think you get in much of uh, the Northern U.S. And it's, even you, know, you look at the writings, contemporary writings at that time, but, you know, Benjamin Franklin, who, I'll be honest with you, you know, you kind of grow up not knowing much about other than the kite and his position in the American Revolution, writes, oh, I mean, I'm not going to read all of this because it's just painfully to read, but it's just on and on. Why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, be a colony of aliens who will shortly be so numerous as to Germanize us instead of anglifying them and will adopt our never adopt our language or customs any more than they could acquire our complexion. Just that sounds so familiar about people talking about immigration now, but that's beside the point. What Franklin is doing is freaking out about the immigration of these people who have a dark complexion he writes, the number of purely white people in the world is proportionably very small. All Africa is black or tawny, Asia chiefly tawny, America wholly so. And in Europe, the Spaniards, Italians, French, Russians, and Swedes are generally of what we call a swarthy complexion, as are the Germans also. The Saxons only accepted who with the English make the principal body of white people on the face of the earth. So he's freaking about about the Pennsylvania Germans coming into Pennsylvania and refusing to speak English and eating their foreign foods and all that. And, uh, you know, 
taking over and destroying, you know, the, the society that us proper people have tried to build. And he's complaining that they're dark skinned and they're freaking Germans. They and took you, our gerbs. Yeah. You could, and you could change a few words and it would sound like your average, you know, baby boom complaining about the Mexicans. The terms just haven't changed. It's always been America was made by hardworking immigrants that made this country great until my ancestors got here. And after that, they really should have pulled up the ladder. The newcomers are just wrecking it for the rest of us. Though, of course, you know, your own ancestors were newcomers just a few generations previously, and people said the same thing about them. Yeah. So in order to justify all this, though, you have people creating myths. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of that is, I'm going to say science. And when I say that, please understand for those who can't see me, science is in big honking quotation marks. Well, actually, Lauren, I'm going to disagree a little bit. It wasn't science in quotation marks. The quotes that we're going to read are for people who were, some of them were the most respected scientists around some of whom did make genuine contributions to to science. And, you know, I am a scientist, but I can't hide by the fact that, oh, they weren't real scientists. They were. They, they, they just, may have been scientists, but what they did was not, in this respect, was not science, is what I'm trying to say. So, for instance, Charles White, the British surgeon, really, you know, he wrote in an account of the regular graduation of man in 1799, that Africans fit between apes and Europeans, but were closer to apes. But he cherry-picked a lot of that. It was, you know, to me, it was like, uh, if I, I mean, I work with data. Given any set of data, if I cherry-pick hard enough, I can prove anything. Yeah, so all of the ways that he thought in which Africans were more ape-like, he wrote about all of the ways, and there's quite a large number in which Africans are less ape-like, were kind of swept under the rug or carefully explained away. And he ended with this hymn to European beauty. And he basically concluded that Europeans were the highest state of mankind because they were the most beautiful. And I'm quoting this because I thought it was funny, where he writes, you know, where shall we find, unless in the European, that nobly arched head containing such a quantity of brain and supported by a hollow conical pillar entering its center. He means a neck. Where the perpendicular face, the prominent nose, and round projecting chin, those long flowing graceful ringlets, that majestic beard, those rosy cheeks and coral lips, where that nice expression of the amiable and softer passions in the countenance, and that general elegance of features and complexion, where, except on the bosom of the European women, two such plump and snowy white hemispheres tipped with vermilion. So the guy was not only a racist, he was definitely a boob man. Yeah. That's a... I just thought that's funny. Plump and snowy white hemispheres tipped with, with vermilion. You can tell what was on his mind. And it comes down to the fact that Europeans are superior because I said they are. Yeah. And, and um, Gus commented that, um, so the racist split in Asatru could be found in this cultural divide of fear of the, quote, other. I think this is how 
you know, early Americans learned to view people of African descent as other and as something that has to be partitioned off, as something that you have to stay pure from. Scientific opinion was that whenever you had mixing of races, the offspring would take after the lower race instead of the higher one. And this is where you get the old one drop of blood laws that said you were considered black if you had any black ancestry at all, even if you had, you know, one black great-great-grandparent and 15 that were European, you would still legally consider black. And so you have to police, sometimes literally, the divide very carefully. So you start seeing people around these times stop believing in like biblical literalism. I don't know where these people were. They clearly were not in Arkansas. Cause, yeah. People were, um, yeah. Southerners tended to be of two minds about this. They certainly wanted to keep the races separate and the Africans in servitude. But if it went against the tenets of the Bible, they, they, yeah, there was there was debate about that. So there was this idea that polygenism became really popular. And it's this idea that Adam and Eve were the parents of the white race and all the other races had different origins. In biological terms, that means that the other races were separate species and therefore, you know, enslaving them wasn't morally any different from domesticating animals to serve you. You know, we've domesticated horses and cows to serve our needs. Why shouldn't we do it with Africans? People tied themselves into all kinds of logical knots to argue for why that was that was true. So you have a scientist from who grew up in Switzerland name, uh, named Louis Agassiz. 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 Yeah, I should have been able to read that, you know. Came to the U.S. as a scientific like rock star and founded the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard, and started out as someone who believed in the unity of humankind, but converted, because there's really no other better word for that, to polygenism, after freaking out because he was served at a restaurant in Philadelphia by African-American waiters. Just know that that kind of phenomenon is not new. You know, we can't just blame that on our current people. Yeah, he'd he'd grown up in Switzerland, which is, you know, makes sour cream look gray. And he'd never really seen Africans before. And then when he moves to the U.S. and is served, and I'm not sure I should really read all of this. Yeah, I'm no, Uh, no, no, no. Okay. But yeah, he's never seen Africans before and he describes them horrifically. We're just going to leave that there. This is actually a letter he wrote home to his mom where he basically goes, and yeah, so I'm going to skip all the description. And he goes, I could not take my eyes off their face in order to tell them to stay away. And when they advanced that hideous hand towards my plate in order to serve me, I wish I were able to depart in order to eat a piece of bread elsewhere rather than dine with such service. What unhappiness for the white race to have tied their existence so closely with a word I'm not going to use in certain countries God preserve us from such contact. All right. And if it was just some, you know, random dude freaking out, it would be one thing. 
but Agassiz is still famous because he's the one who gathered the evidence for a fairly recent ice age in the geologic past. You know, he made it possible those movies about a, uh, you know, suicidal ma- mammoth and uh, crazy squirrel thing and stupid sloth, right? Ice age. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that was that was that was him that first put the theories together. Because growing up in Switzerland, he knew what glaciers did to the landscape, and then he found evidence for, you know, that kind of evidence in places like upstate New York. And he was one of the best-known scientists in America at the time. I mean, he wined and dined the cream of society in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and got them to donate huge amounts of money for this enormous museum he built up at Harvard. And he went on to write things like it seems to us to be mock philanthropy and mock philosophy to assume that all races have the same abilities, enjoy the same powers and show the same natural dispositions. And that in consequence of this equality, they are entitled to the same position in human society. They're not the same. And we've got to, in the words of one of the great traditional bards of the 1990s, you got to keep them separated. Yeah. Yeah, right. So we also have uh, Samuel George Morton, who built up this huge collection of human skulls, which that first part sounds kind of cool, to measure their cranial capacity, and concluded whites were superior, blacks and Native Americans were inferior, and the races were separate species. But when you look at his data, actually look at it, his results were super biased, although it's not clear how much was due to his own bias and how much it was to, like, the fact he didn't understand statistics and yeah. other factors. Yeah. yeah. To be fair, statistics was still not known. I mean, I don't think they'd invented things like standard deviations and significant testing and, and things like that. But yeah, he built up this collection of hundreds of skulls, most of them sent by people in all parts of the world. So he represented a pretty big cross-section of Afri- of world diversity, uh, a lot of them acquired by things like robbing Native American graves and things like that, which you could get away with back then. People robbed all kinds of graves back then because, mm-hmm. yeah. He got this big collection of Egyptian mummy skulls and things like that. He had skulls from everywhere and measured the capacity of the skull by pouring a lead shot into the skull and then pouring it out into a a measuring cylinder, you know, something like a tall measuring cup. And people have re-looked at his data. The problem is it's really hard to measure because it depends in part, you know how the cereal always settles You buy a full box, and then when you get it home, there's always some space. Because when you fill the cereal, it settles while it's being transported. If you pour lead shot into a skull, you know, how much will fit in depends on how much you shake the the skull. You can make this lead shot settle so you can pour in a little more. There may have been some bias there, and the, the point is just that it's not easy to measure cranial capacity with perfect rigor, at least not with the methods he was using. And then the single biggest influence on the size of your brain is actually the size of your body. People with small bodies tend to have smaller heads in proportion. 
And this has nothing to do with intelligence except in some limited, you know, clinical cases. You know, brain size is not a measure of intelligence. Otherwise, we'd have to conclude, you know, that, you know, short people got no reason. Short people got, you know, that song, no reason. Yeah. Okay. Right. So what all I'm getting from this is that this guy really was truly a bonehead. Oh, ha ha ha. Yeah. I I try. Okay. Yeah. Good one. I've, and I've seen some reanalyses of his skulls that conclude that he wasn't deliberately being deceitful about all of this, but it's hard to measure. You need techniques that weren't available to him. And because it was only a collection of skulls, he had no data on body size. So you have these skulls and you know that they're native or European or what have you, but you don't know how big the body was that's attached to them. But this whole thing touched off a fashion for measuring skull traits in order to assess how human populations were related to each other and, uh, of course, how intelligent they were, because everyone assumed that the bigger the brain, the smarter the person. Yes, the the exciting science of craniometry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or... running around with calipers, sticking them onto people's heads. One of the things the uh, the SS did was send a German scientist on this grand expedition to Tibet, and uh, they brought back a lot of information on Tibetan society, you know, before the Chinese, you know, moved in a lot about how it was done, what was going on in the monasteries, things like that. But the leader of the expedition named Bruno Bagler just brought calipers and measured everybody's heads to try and work out again, whether these uh, Tibetans might not be a lost tribe of Aryans. Turns out they probably weren't, but the Germans were, fascinated with trying to come up with a way to scientifically demonstrate who was Aryan and who wasn't. And they never really did succeed despite, you know, measuring an enormous amount of data on, you know, people's heads and bodies. They never did quite work out what will enable you to tell a pure German from an impure German. You just can't get it to work. But people tried all through the 19th century. A French scientist named Paul Broca Broca believed that true Aryans had relatively long heads relative to their width. If you measure the distance from your center of your forehead to the back of your head and divide that by the width of your head from ear to ear, you have relatively... I haven't had my coffee, so I may not be doing the math quite right in my head. But in fact, you get relatively long heads relative to width. I think the width is like 75% or less of the length in populations that are called dolichocephalic. And people with short heads are said to be brachycephalic with a ratio of like 80% or more. True Aryans are supposed to be long-headed. Inferior people are supposed to be short-headed. Broca found out that people like the Australian Aborigines, who were considered to be the most inferior of all people, were actually among the most long-headed people of all. But he concluded that superior people were dolichocephalic because they had long brains in front, while inferior people were dolichocephalic, but it was because they had too much in the back. 
So what so, you're saying is basically anything that didn't prove that Aryans were the smartest, they came up with some sort of asinine reason as to why, you know, their data doesn't actually fit. Yeah, and, there's this this heads I win, no pun intended. And yeah, heads I win, tails you lose attitude. Presumed um, asking if this led to phrenology at all. Phrenology actually comes from a little bit earlier than that. That was a big debate uh, starting in the very early 19th century. And at the time, it was a serious question because there were some people who believed that, you know, pretty much all of your brain was used for thinking. The phrenologists believed that different parts of the brain might be specialized for different things. And they were right about that. They just weren't right that you could, you know, tell what parts of the brain were largest by feeling the bumps on your head. But that actually comes in a little bit earlier. Broca being it said, you know, we still call a part of uh, the left temporal cortex up here, uh, Broca's area. It's a, a part of the brain that's deeply involved in language processing. And one of Broca's patients had damage there and lost the ability to speak but did retain abilities to write and do other things. And Broca was one of the first to localize a part of the brain to a specific function that people do. So great scientist, important discoveries, but obsessed with the idea that you could tell who was on top of the tree and who was not by measuring skulls. So interesting enough, we have a country here in the United States that Africans were enslaved and we killed off the native indigenous people or drove them off their lands. It's amazing. Polygenism was super popular here. Mm -hmm. I wonder why. You I still mean, have the problem that it conflicts with the Bible. People were kind of torn about this. But in the uh, Charleston Medical Journal, when Morton died, the editor wrote, we can only say that we of the South should consider him as our benefactor for aiding most materially in giving to the African his true position as an inferior race. And the medical doctor and Samuel Cartwright wrote a lot of stuff that I'm not even going to quote, but wrote an article in 1851 arguing that the medicine used for slaves had to be completely different from the medicine for Europeans because being different species, what was good treatment for one would kill another and he goes through this long list of ways in which Africans and Europeans are so different from each other that they are, in fact, a separate species. One of them was, here's another case of heads I win, tails you lose. Brains were darker when you dissected their heads. And then someone wrote and said, hey, I've tried it, and they're actually lighter. And Cartwright wrote, you idiot, you know, who's, you're so stupid, you don't realize that the lighter colored brains were diseased. So either the brains are darker or they're lighter because you're diseased. And the truth is, color doesn't mean a blasted thing. But never mind that, you, you protect status for the people that you're allowing into the white people club and you defend that with as many scientific arguments as you can. You have to police that barrier between who's allowed to be free and privileged and who is not allowed to. 
And as he wrote, the vulgar error that there is no difference in the Africans' organization, physiology, and psychology, and that all the apparent difference arises from Southern slavery is the cause of all those political agitations which are threatening to dissolve our union. So even then, he's putting science in the service of letting the South keep their peculiar institution. Gus asked, well, what makes the experience, American experience, so different from the rest of the world? Chattel slavery. Yeah, the rest of the world never had one particular race that was picked out for enslavement. Though the Vikings took slaves, but they were pretty much equal opportunity slavers. You know, they'd sell people of their own culture as readily as they'd sell anybody else. Olaf, now I can't remember if it was Tryggvason or Haraldson, but one of the uh, kings, Olaf of Norway, he and his mother were taken as slaves and, you know, enslaved for a time before coming out of that. I mean, in Canada... You know, chattel slavery never really took hold, and the first African populations in Canada were runaway slaves that were escaping the United States. So you've got oh, a very Canada. old, yeah, you've got a very old African community in, I believe it's Nova Scotia, and some others that are descended from slaves that ran away and escaped on the Underground Railroad. Britain did have slavery in its colonies, notably Jamaica until 1833. But on British soil itself, the argument was that, uh, I think they used to say, English air makes a man free. That if you brought your slaves to England, you had to pay them uh, a decent wage. The same was true in Russia. Uh, the czars used to have African servants who would dress up in turbans and you know, look very decorative, but they were actually paid servants and fairly well paid. Still not exactly equality, but other countries never got this concept that one race is naturally subservient to everybody. Soon after the outbreak of the Civil War, the vice president of the Confederacy gave a speech that's still called the Cornerstone Speech. And I won't quote it, but you can look it up. And he claimed that the cornerstone on which the Confederacy was founded was the natural and moral truth that Africans were not equal to whites and slavery was their natural and normal condition the way that God and nature intended. And yeah, it'll, it'll set your teeth on edge, but everybody ought to read it because it's great for quoting when your drunkle insists that the Civil War was only about states' rights. You can say, no, this is the vice president of the Confederacy and he damn well tells you what it was about, and it was about maintaining slavery because it was the natural status of the African race. They were there for Europeans to use. And that's what's unique about the U.S. experience as opposed to other countries. I'm not saying that other countries are racial paradises. I hear dark things about the treatment of indigenous people in Canada, but this is what's unique to the United States. This is, if I believed in original sin, this is what I'd call it. You know, this, is, this is the rot in the, this is the poison in the air and the water that we breathe. Just to recap, so that, you know, other countries did have slaves, but they just didn't limit it or, or to only chattel slavery type stuff. Is that what you were yeah, know, basically well, the, saying? The Vikings and before them, the Romans and a lot of ancient peoples, they would take slaves 
as war captains. You know, if you if you fight the Roman army and you have the bad misfortune to lose, then the reward that you give the Romans for not massacring you is you have to wash their socks, right? You become a you become a slave, but it was never connected with a particular ethnicity. There were dark-skinned slaves in ancient Rome. There were light-skinned slaves. There were German slaves. There were Ethiopian slaves. There were anybody who got in the way of the Roman legions could be taken as a slave. So you couldn't tell who was and who wasn't a slave just by looking. It wasn't connected with a particular ethnic group or race. And slaves weren't always treated well. But it wasn't that uncommon that they could be freed and set up as free members of of society. And so there were people of African descent who ended up in very high rank in ancient Rome. One of the emperors, uh, Septimius Severus, was North African. So a lot of places had slavery, but it's uniquely in America that we decided that one particular race was permanently marked out for it and had to stay that way for you know eternity because it was part of the divine plan. A good part of that was because there was this idea that Africans were basically too childlike and too dumb for to know better. They were emotional, impulsive, and they had to have this firm guiding hand or they'd never accomplish anything which also meant that they couldn't have out you know we would we've got to keep the alcohol and the because this is the early 20th century the cocaine out of the hands of those poor africans yeah before we get to the whiskey and the cocaine beginning in i think the 1820s one of the great popular entertainments in america was this thing called the minstrel show where you'd have mostly white performers performing in blackface and telling jokes and playing the banjo. That's an African instrument, by the way. And this is how it made it into things like bluegrass was through these people who were impersonating Africans. And they do these dances and they do these jokes and they do these songs and portrayed an image of people of African descent as being happy-go-lucky, simple children who left to their own devices would do nothing more than dance and sing and eat watermelon and, and that sort of thing. The idea that was that if they were ever to make anything of themselves, they needed the firm guiding hand of the parental master. And after slavery was over, one of the roots of prohibition was to try to keep alcohol out of the hands of people of African descent because it would make them lazy and lie around and not do anything useful. And so we quote a New York Times article from 1914. Lauren, you want to do this? Yeah. So they say they're here where the simplest way to remove the added menace, and it seems simple theoretically at least, would would be to keep the whiskey out of the low-class hands by legislating it out of existence as far as he's concerned. And so Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Mississippi, Tennessee, and West Virginia passed laws intended to abolish the saloon and keep whiskey and the African separated. 
But unfortunately for the African and his community, by the way, there's a different word there every time I say African, just trust me. Such a substitute was found almost immediately, a substitute that is inestimably worse even than the moonshine whiskey, drugstore nostrums, or the deadly wood alcohol poison. The substitute, as I've pointed out, is cocaine, and a trail of blood and disaster has marked progress of the substitution. There was so, a moral panic yeah. about cocaine-crazed Africans. Oh, th- this article that we quote talks about how, you know, once they're hopped up on cocaine, bullets won't stop them. And you can shoot them six times and they'll still keep coming. And for some reason, they suddenly become much better shots when they're hopped up on cocaine. So they can shoot you dead and you can't stop them. And it sounds exactly like the panic I remember about crack cocaine in you know, the 80s and the 90s. Or PCP. Or PCP. Or for that matter, the crazy things they told about marijuana. Anybody ever seen the movie Reefer Madness? Oh, yes. yes you know, sure where one, one toke is enough to turn you into a complete maniac who, I don't know, axe murders your parents or something like that. Yeah, a lot of the fear of drug use comes from the need to restrict it and keep it out of the hands of African-Americans who couldn't handle it. And this is part of the motivation behind prohibition. It's to keep, you know, poor African-Americans from going to the saloon. The paranoia about marijuana is to keep them from smoking it because it was seen as a black and also, you know, Mexican-American drug, at least at first. They Uh, they just wanted to prevent jazz music. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, they didn't succeed. Yes. And then this moral panic about cocaine. Somebody, I forget who, wrote that um, most of the attacks on women in the South are carried out by the cocaine-crazed brain of the African-American. The idea being that you know these people were too immature to handle drug use, and they would turn into maniacs, and they'd rape white women. None of which is necessarily true, but it doesn't have to be true. It's all part of the myth. It's all part of the story that we keep telling ourselves to explain why those people have to sit in the balcony at movie theaters and have to use discarded high school textbooks from 30 years ago. It's all part of that myth that explains why the world is supposed to be the way it is. And ironically, they felt the same way about women. Mm -hmm. So they basically said, you know, the grown-up African partakes as regard to his intellectual facilities of the nature of the child, the female, and the senile white. Right. That's a German Um, anatomist named Karl Vogt from uh, 1864. And then, you know, you have another anatomist saying men of black races have a brain scarcely heavier than that of a white woman. Mm Mm-hmm. And women are also childlike and impulsive, and you, you know how emotional they get. <sighs> so, you know, you have to take them in hand, take over, because the man is, you know, the rational and reasonable one. And it, it's funny, I've seen this, I don't want to get too focused on current U.S. politics, because, damn, that's depressing, But I've seen people on Facebook feeds make the argument that conservatives are rational and it's the liberals that are getting too emotional and worked up and, 
you know, making these decisions because they feel bad for the poor kids in cages rather than the rational decision that only the conservative intellectual father figure can make. So you get this association with irrationality and sentiment and emotionalism as applied to women and as applied to people of other races and as applied to political enemies. It's still there. So are you triggered yet, Ben? That's always the thing that I hear. So all of this leads into one of the things that we talk about, have to talk about, Oh, and that is eugenics in the U.S. So let's let's set the scene here. Picture it. The United States, the 1880s. And immigration is soaring. Much of it from Italy, Eastern Europe, and China out in the West as they're starting to build the railroad. So you have Francis Galton, who is Charles Darwin's, Charles Darwin's cousin, writes... Hereditary genus in 1883, arguing that intelligence was entirely genetic and not the result of environment and education. Mm-hmm. So this means that you, you start having the eugenics movement, which sought to selectively breed humanity by encouraging the better people, better in heavy quotation marks, to have babies, positive eugenics this, and discouraging the worst people, also in very heavy quotation marks there, to not. So uh, known as negative eugenics. And this got super popular in the U.S., uh, partly because you had this paranoia about immigrants that were less fit and that they would outbreed the good old Americans and drag the country down, which... Oddly enough, you see this again in some of the stuff I was raised around. You know, that that's part of the argument you see with like the Quiverful movement, where we must outbreed, and of course most of theirs is we must outbreed the they're obsessed with the Catholics and the Muslims. But you basically have these organizations that will sponsor fitter families contests at state and county fairs. I'd much rather have fat baby contests, but that's just me. Yeah, they but also no, you, you could enter your own family for judging the way at the county fair, the way you could enter your livestock or your jam or your pickles in contest. You could enter yourself and see who had the, you know, the the fittest, the fittest offspring. They called it fitter families for future firesides. Ben, I, I won a cross-stitch competition at the county fair in Woodruff County in 1989. You won a what? Cross-stitch. Oh, okay. I, right. I did a little cross-stitch pillow. It was really cute. It was a robin. Well, but anyway. A hundred years ago, you could have entered yourself. Yeah, I know. I was a pretty blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid that my parents were convinced were going to get kidnapped by Satanists. I probably would have been all right. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> They also sponsored mandatory sterilization laws. So people who were judged feeble-minded had to be sterilized. And the Supreme Court actually upheld that these laws were constitutional in Buck versus Bell in 1927. They also were super into intelligence testing. Yeah, Buck v. Bell is one of the worst decisions they ever made but they upheld the constitutionality of mandatory sterilization if the state found you feeble-minded 
uh, which was not very well defined. Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the uh, decision and, um, you know, allowing a girl named Carrie Buck to be sterilized against her will. And, you know, they looked at data from her family and Holmes wrote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. This family's yeah. never going to produce anything good. Higher tubes. And, and to add insult to injury, eugenics also brought about the standardized test because you had in 1917, when the U.S. entered World War I, you have a Robert Yerkes who tested 1.75 million army recruits for their intelligence and uh, found that African-Americans as well as immigrants from certain areas had a lower intelligence. Of course, the Army A and Army B tests that Yerkes devised are the grandparents of the standardized test. And one of the issues that we find with standardized testing now is that it, they can have an extreme cultural bias and can be written in such a way that mm -hmm. people who are traditionally kind of from white, middle, and upper class do better because of the cultural bias and how those tests are written. There were questions like multiple choice. Canasta is played with... Cards, checkers, coins, or pins. I think many of you might not know because canasta is not as popular as it used to be. I think I know it's a card game because old people in my family like to play it. But you know. right, there was another one where part of the test was written for people who couldn't read. There were a lot more illiterates back then, and one of them was they'd show you pictures with one thing missing and you had to draw it in. So there's a picture of a one-eared rabbit and you have to draw the second ear, that sort of thing. There was one with a house and what you were supposed to draw in was the chimney. And Yerkes found that immigrants from Sicily didn't draw the chimney in because the houses they knew didn't have those. What they draw in was the crucifix because you have to have one of those on the door in in Sicily, or at least you did at the time. So this was very biased towards a particular cyclical experiences. Yerkes found that um, people with low scores also tended to be suffering from things like anemia caused by parasite infection. So that tends to lower your your acuity as well. But yeah, he basically concluded that the United States was full of literally morons and, you know, people who are unfit to do anything other than the duties of a buck private, and that clearly we have to do something about this. So data like this was used to support eugenics programs, you know, get rid of the stop breeding from the unfit, which included Africans, immigrants, and also poor whites. It, it, fell on people of lower social class just as much as it fell on people of the wrong ethnicity. I will say, though, bad methodology, but I do have to agree with some of his conclusions. The United States can be full of morons sometimes. <laughs> just not the methodology he got there was good. Mm -hmm. So Puck suggested that the Nazis took eugenics ideas from the U.S. and modeling the Nuremberg they laws did. on U.S. race um, laws. Yeah, it's not a very comfortable truth, but the Nazis were very much inspired by American eugenics, and they were particularly inspired by this guy, right? I always have to have something I can open and hold up to the microphone so you can see it, right? Yeah, that's a book. 
So Madison Grant. Before you go on, I just want to tell everyone who's in the room with us today what a special treat it is to actually see what Ben is holding <laughs> up to the mic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Madison Grant, who was a New York City lawyer, was deeply distressed about the immigration from, quote unquote, inferior countries. So he wrote The Passing of the Great Race, which was one of Hitler's favorite books, where he Mm -hmm. divided the the Nordics, Mediterraneans, and Alpines. So the Nordics were the Anglo-Saxons, the Germans, and Scandinavians were, of course, superior uh, the Mediterraneans were still okay because that was the Greeks and the Romans and Egyptians, and they at least built some pretty buildings. And the Alpines were the worst, were the Celts and the Slavs. And people of this inferior stock who were immigrating in great numbers were dragging down our country and making America. Well, I'm not even going to go there. So basically, they were also breeding with pure Nordic stock of old colonial America. And that's what had made this country great. Oh, right. It was, it was the old Saxon stock that had built this country. And now it was especially the Alpines, the, the Celts, the Slavs, the Eastern European Jews, the, some of the Italians and the Middle Easterners who were flooding in. And one of the things worth pointing out is that all of these are people that would traditionally be called white. But just like Benjamin Franklin freaking out because of the dark-complected Germans that are flooding into Pennsylvania, Grant is dividing you know, the Caucasian race into subgroups, and only certain subgroups get you know, full paid-up membership in human society. So again, it's not so much about what tone your skin has. It's about, do you have access to power? And Grant was very concerned that people like, you know, Eastern European Jews might get access to power because they wouldn't know what to do with it. And I'll read a um, a quote. These immigrants adopt the language of the Native American. And what he means is English stock, not, you know, Native American, as we'd say now. They wear his clothes. They steal his name and they are beginning to take his women you know, they can't understand, you know, the true nature of being an American of the old colonial breed. One might even say that they can't understand because of metagenetics. They took our women's. They took our women's. And as he writes, see if this sounds familiar, New York is becoming a cloaca gentium, which is Latin for a sewer of races which will produce many amazing racial hybrids and some ethnic horrors that will be beyond the powers of future anthropologists to unravel. Now, who else do we know is freaking out in the 1920s about ethnic horrors? We're going to Godwin the podcast, aren't we? Well, okay, it is true that Hitler actually loved this book. This is, you know, (laughs) favorite bedtime reading for him. Uh, But what I had in mind was an American author who was very concerned with ethnic horrors breeding in isolated New England towns or Louisiana bayous where everybody looked highly inbred and looked kind of like fish. No, what I had in mind was H.P. Lovecraft. Ah, yes. Who's also an Anglophile who's convinced of the superiority of the old English colonial stock of New England 
and is terrified of that stock being defiled by interbreeding with, you know, people of, you know, strange and unspeakable ethnicities. And so you get these weird fish people that are breeding with the deep ones in New England or Louisiana. And once they've done that, they're going to summon Cthulhu and all that. There is a big time racist subtext in H.P. Lovecraft original um, yes. writing. I want to kind of take a second here. So all of this, though, does start these ideas filter out of the U.S. And so while we we have some of the American heathen stuff, a lot of this starts to influence. And if you haven't listened to it yet, please go back to our first our first episode where we talk about a Red Mills who ended up influencing American heathenry really great. Yeah, there were certainly European racial theorists. Houston Stewart Chamberlain was one who was influential on, on the Nazis. Before that, a French aristocrat and diplomat named uh, Gobineau, who also wrote books asserting that the pure Aryans were the only race that had ever done anything for a while. So but, it's not only coming out of America, but there's a particular strain coming out of it. And it did influence Hitler. Right. And then Hitler, in turn, starts influencing people like A. Rod Mills, who then in turn influences Elsa Christensen, who influences Steve McNallan. There's a, we're a heathen history podcast, but I kind of want to throw in here and show, you know, listen, this is legitimately a, there's a legitimate line and lineage into heathenry from these beliefs beyond just the fact that this greatly influenced society in general. Right. It actually shows up elsewhere. I found Dion Fortune's book on Kabbalah, which I think is called The Key to the Kabbalah or something something like that. And Kabbalah is, of course, this thing that grows out of Jewish mysticism where you have 10 different emanations of God and they're connected by 22 paths, and you can, you know, mentally walk the paths from different emanations and do various things with them, and it ties in with tarot and astrology and everything else. And she writes that Kabbalah is perfect for Western mystics, because Eastern mysticism like that of the, you know, of India and China is less racially suitable. The idea being that Westerners have their own particular type of mysticism that they should employ rather than other people's because other people's wasn't suitable to their racial makeup. And I'm reading this and going, although give her credit, she was, you know, introducing Kabbalah as appropriate for white people. So at least she's not locking the Jews out. But yeah, this idea that your race determined what you were spiritually best suited for, that's basically metagenetics, but it's a hell of a lot older than Steve McNallan. And he may have gotten some of his ideas through that conduit in occultism. He may well have also got them from the fact that he grew up in a cow town in Texas, which in the 1950s, I can't really imagine it was what you would call exactly woke. He also could have been heavily influenced by Elsa Christensen mm. uh, because you do see a big deviation in his content after contact with her. But right. so let's talk about 
the fight back against this. So after World War II, you start seeing, first we'll kind of go in here, that by the 1930s, eugenics was kind of leaving the mainstream because basically science, geneticists, and all were kind of like, yeah, no, this isn't right. So you pretty much have only really the Nazis keeping this idea of eugenics as a pretty serious idea. You have the loony fringe, but mainstream-wise. So then you have soldiers returning home who have seen these atrocities that Nazi Germany put forth in World War II. You have African-American soldiers who were in the war. They fought. They basically did everything that every other soldier did they come home and they're still facing the same prejudices before, even though they had sacrificed their time and life to go and fight for the country. And like, you start having real genetic analysis that's replacing things like biometrics or, you know, measuring skull shape and all that. And it was really getting hard to scientifically support this strict, well-defined racial boundary as something that is physiological. So you have UNESCO releasing a statement in 50 and 52, for all practical purposes, race is not so much a biological phenomenon as a social myth. And given similar degrees of cultural opportunity to realize their potentialities, the average achievement of the member of each ethnic group is about the same. And that bothered the heck out of people. There was definitely a counterpunch to UNESCO's statements that race was a social myth and not so much a biological phenomenon. Be it said, human diversity is real. Race, however, is the boxes that we stick it in. That is not biologically real. Most human diversity is within what we think of as racial groups, not between them. There's very few traits or genes that everyone that we think of as white people has and nobody else has. We share much, much more than what divides us. And the divisions get incredibly fuzzy if you actually try to pin down what they are. So human diversity is a true thing. The pigeonholes we put it in don't exist biologically, while at the same are incredibly powerful socially. You know, this is why, you know, the people who claim not to see color are not really being as helpful as perhaps they think they are. Because as far as the myths that we divide our society with, race is very much exist and is very much alive. And yeah, it determines yeah. whether the cops will kill you or not, damn it. The, the only valid reason to say you don't see color is if you're actually blind. Mm -hmm. Because then truly you don't, but... So you have scientists that testify in the 1954 Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, that basically say this is not cool. And that's part of the reason you have the court's conclusion that separate what equal is not is harmful and not constitutionally valid. So you kind of have the punch back, like Ben was talking about. You have Reginald Gates, who is a British scientist and botanist, who insisted on major mental and physical distinctions between the race. And of course, I feel like we can't do an episode about a racist thing unless we have to include at least it was a Jewish conspiracy. 
which he said that basically the differences were a result of interracial breeding, which he was a Jewish conspiracy. And so you have this idea that a hybridized people will be unhappy. I'm not reading that quote. It's no. But just he wrote basically that people of mixed race, what we would call now, were going to be crazy and cause crimes and be unhappy and ha- be badly adjusted in their mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and he refused to adopt any kind of more modern approaches to research and continue to uphold this idea that the human races were separate species, even though everyone else in the world was like, uh, yeah, no, you're dumb. And this caused him to get fired from Howard University in 19th. Wait, Howard? Yeah. Howard? Howard, the oldest. Howard University? Yeah, the oldest and most prestigious historically black university in the United States had Reginald Gates on the faculty. And yeah, he got he got dismissed when it became known that he was a big time believer in racial inequality. So, yeah, a little bit of irony there. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just had to. Yeah, Mm -hmm. sorry. Yeah. Gates was really upset about this. You know, how dare they fire me? I'm a scientist. I'm doing objective and balanced, you know, fair and balanced research here. You know, who dare question me? You know, even though he was a complete stick in the mud, at least, you know, as far as his, you know, younger colleagues were concerned, he was not adapting well to the major changes that were in store because this is the time just before the structure of DNA gets worked out and people are beginning to realize what DNA is and what it does and how genes operate in ways that are a hell of a lot more complicated than your high school biology class. You know, genes were becoming to be realized as working in much more subtle ways. And Gates never really was able to go with that flow. And this rich New York textile magnate named Wycliffe Draper, lovely name, with more money than he knew what to do with, did what a lot of wealthy people have done and tried to shape public opinion by supporting scientific think tanks. And with his money, Gates and company founded a journal called the Mankind Quarterly that was dedicated to publishing pro-racist, pro-segregation scientific research. And in fact, it still does. In Uh, fact, so Roger Pearson, who was a South African economist, kind of gets into the mainstream conservative circles in the 70s and founds the Institute for the Study of Man. And this publishing company is supported by the Pioneer Fund, which is a nonprofit foundation organized and funded by wealthy segregationists, eugenists, and Nazi sympathizers. And they take over Mankind Quarterly in 1978. So it is, in fact, still going strong. And they still publish, you know, pro-racist and pro-segregation research papers. They're generally not very good, and there's some pretty basic errors they tend to make. But they fill that particular niche in the publishing world, I suppose. And this is what knocked my socks off. That Institute for the Study of Man kept publishing Mankind Quarterly until 2015, and they publish a sister journal to it that's more academically respectable, called the Journal of Indo-European Studies. And this bugs the crap out of me 
because I used the Journal of Indo-European Studies to do basic research for our troth. And to be honest, you can't really get away from it. A lot of the stuff that they publish is extremely nerdy details about you know, consonant shifts and, you know, laryngeal velar consonants in proto-Anatolian and things like that, a lot of it does not look to have an obvious racial bias at all. It's just not that sort of thing. And yet, it's being funded by the same people that put out, you know, anti-busing booklets in the 1960s in the American South. It's funded by the same people that funded a book called The Bell Curve that came out 25-ish years ago that argue that racial differences in American society were real, important, wouldn't go away, and did not justify giving opportunities to African Americans for education and, and betterment, using a bunch of dodgy stats as well. So... Yeah, I couldn't get away from the Journal of Indo-European Studies when I was doing my my our troth research, and I don't think I cited anything that you can really put a finger on as being openly racist. They publish a lot of stuff that, as far as I can tell, isn't biased because it's hard to get a racial bias out of patterns of changes in laryngeal consonants in Proto-Indo-European, but there's still an agenda there. And it hasn't gone away. And on a broader scale, the idea of races as being biologically real and the sort of thing that can't truly mix and the sort of things that have fundamentally different natures from each other is very much real. And it's the kind of thing that you get from metagenetics and the folkish wing of heathenry. Not that Africans are inferior, oh heavens no, but that their nature is such that they can't be heathens and they should stick to their own native spirituality and leave ours alone. So there are some very, very definite common common threads there. Part of this that wouldn't kind of refer back in when we looked at things like on our British and German romantics and our We'd have unleashed episode you definitely have a lot of using of these ideas to promote nationalism, using these ideas to promote romanticism of these times when these races were allegedly separate and looking at things like you have that in the, especially in Britain during the romantic era with Vikings and even post-World War II when you saw the glut of young men's Viking books that came out. And one of the things I want to draw real attention to that ties this back to heathenry and then our time is almost gone is a lot of these ideas influenced the publishing of the time. These, as they were accepted ideas. And because a lot of early heathens, your only access was to, you know, your local public library that may have been all that your library had because it was horribly underfunded and only had four different like books of Norse mythology and like one very old copy of the truth about witchcraft today at the Woodruff County Library in the 1990s. You see some experience here. Yeah, I grew up in a real small town. We had one library in the entire county. So uh, 
it becomes a situation where even if someone wasn't necessarily predisposed to being bigoted, the information that we had, especially in the early parts of heathenry, could be super biased just because those people didn't have the same access to information that we did. They didn't have the same access to the internet. You know, I can go now and I can pull up all kinds of research papers that I could have never dreamed of. And certainly not in the seventies, unless you had access to a real large legitimate research library. Right. And yeah, one of the reasons why we do this podcast is to get more information out in a, a form that's that's more accessible. We you know? read horrible racist things so you don't have to. Yeah, um, I read this so you don't have to. Mm-hmm. We've both read, I think, every issue of The Odinist at this point. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh, um, Elsa Christensen did not know when to shut the hell up. No, oh, no. we have a question on the chat before we yes. go. Cynthia says, I thought nobody knew what the Indo-European complexion looked like. They were often assumed to be, you know, tall and blonde. Nietzsche somewhere wrote about a a horde of blonde beasts of prey. More recently, they've gotten some DNA from skeletons of people who are thought to be speakers of early Indo-European languages, people called the corded ware people from Eastern Europe. You can't tell what language somebody spoke from their DNA, so this is all circumstantial. But the data that they've got so far suggests that they weren't blonde beasts of prey. They were darker than most modern European populations, and it's not entirely clear whether they would have passed the old paper bag test that you used to have to pass to get into the right country club. They were browner than probably most most races would like to think. And they seem to have some ancestry, the Proto-European speakers, you know, to the extent that you can map genes on languages at all, they seem to have had some ancestry coming from the Caucasus Mountains and some from a Siberian population that also has links with Native Americans. And one of the things that you find about European genetic history is that the idea of Europe as being one race is actually quite new because what you have, and we talk about this in our troth, is genetic stocks from all over the place coming in and mingling. So you have some Europeans who've been there since the Stone Age mating with some that came from the Near East and brought agriculture and then some that come from the Asian steppes and, you know, History on the population level looks a whole lot more like a, a big swirl, sort yes. of you know, nice, neat blocks that we like to have. Everybody's got ancestors that would not have passed the paper bag test. It's only a question of how far you have to go back to find them. So with that, guys, that is our show this week. Thank you, John, for being with us, moderating. We We'll probably have you back for an actual episode pretty soon. But for now, if you like what we're doing, you can find us on social media. We're pretty much at Heathen History on Twitter, Facebook. Don't have an Instagram. We also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Heathen History, and that goes to help feed our editor. And Mm. as always, we will have our show notes and more importantly, our sources up 
at heathenhistory.com. So our theme music is Happy Viking by Roller Music. For the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. What's the y'all? <laughs>